Good morning, lovely to see you all. Um, this morning we're going to talk about this, uh, the Bible, slavery, arms dealers, NDAs and bread. And um, we are gonna, we're going to go from Genesis through to Corinthians in 30 minutes, okay? We're going to take a huge overview of the whole Bible, because uh, I promised I'd do this about two months ago. And um, I want to show you some themes and some threads that go through the Bible. I want to probably try and explain why some of the things you see happen, happen. Uh, why there's this growth and then this fall and then this growth again that you see. Um, yeah, obviously, there's lots I can't say in 30 minutes, okay? So I am going to miss some bits out, obviously. Um, but hopefully the bits we fill in are going to be helpful in understanding. When we look at the Bible as a whole book, what does it, what does it say? What are its common, what is one of the common threads and themes? That's what I want to do today. Um, let me start by saying this. The Bible is a book about redemption. If you, want me to, if you ask me what's the Bible about, it's a book about redemption. That's what I'd say the Bible was all about. Um, and of course, it's not one book. It's really a library of 66 books. Um, they're not in chronological order when you read them, so it's not always easy to work out what's going on where. Some books are talking about the same events, but from different perspectives. Um, and they all have different meanings. But the key thing for me is that it's a book about redemption. It's a book about God hearing the cries of people's hearts and doing something about it. And that's why it's not a dusty old history book. It's why it's relevant, because you have cries. Your friends, your neighbours, your family have cries, and God is interested in those cries and wants to do something about it. And although Genesis is the first book when you open it, many, many scholars, and I'm not a scholar, but... I, really Exodus is the start of the Bible. Genesis is the prequel. Genesis is Star Wars 1, 2, and 3, 2, 4, 5, and 6, okay? Like Exodus is where it starts, and Genesis, oh, well, how do we actually get here? And, um, and the story of, of Exodus, of the book of Exodus, is a story about a place called Egypt, which was basically the superpower of the day. Think 1960, America, Russia, Cold War. There's these big superpowers, these big people who are in charge. Think of maybe 10, 20 years' time, when China might arise to be that superpower. There's always been superpowers all kind of across the place. And so it's a story about how this tribe of nomads called the Israelites were slaves for the Egyptian pharaoh. They find themselves in slavery, and we read this in Exodus 3, verse 7 to 9. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. This is God in the Old Testament at the beginning. See, when people tell me the Bible is all about this God of wrath and vengeance, I go, no, it's not. This is God. What's this God doing? In Exodus chapter 3, right at the beginning, this is like maybe three, two, 3,000 BC, this God goes, I've seen their misery. I've heard them crying out. I'm concerned about their suffering. The cry has reached me. That word cry there is the Hebrew word sack, and we find it all through the Bible. It's an expression of, of pain. It's, it's the, the ouch, the sound that you utter when you're wounded. But more than that, it's also a question that arises out of that pain. Where's justice? Did anyone see what just happened? Does anyone care? Who will come to my rescue? Did anyone hear that? Or am I just alone? This is a cry that rises up. And of course, Egypt... Egypt's not just a physical place, it's a metaphor for the world not being right, just like it's not being right now, in all sorts of different ways. 
So this 2,000-year-old book speaks right into today. When we cry, when we ask those questions, what is God's response? What does God do when we cry out? Because Exodus is about being rescued from slavery. It's about liberation from occupation. It's about the power of redemption from empire. And it's central to the Jewish story. And it is a Jewish story. So you have to understand Jesus in the context of a Jewish story. Because he was a Jew. He was a Jewish person. Can you already see the links? Jesus was born into a world of occupation and empire. Different empire, different occupation. But it was a Roman occupation with a Roman empire. The Jewish people were oppressed by taxes and rules and regulations and they wanted liberation. There's already this picture already in Exodus and Jesus. There's this idea of empire and superpowers and and oppression and somebody being lifted out of it. So God speaks to Moses, an exiled shepherd, and he speaks to the highest authority in the land, letting him know that this empire is over and these slaves are going free. That's the whole Moses and Pharaoh story and the plagues. Which is interesting because you could easily replace the name Moses with a guy called Amos hundreds of years later and then a guy called Jesus hundreds of years later who were all shepherds of one degree or another who all spoke to power and said the empire is over. There's these incredible stories and links that go through. Eventually the Israelites get to a mountain called Sinai and it's here where you start to see how this God operates. You have yourselves seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are speak to the Israelites. So first of all, you see, there is, it's actually all about grace. The reason they're in slavery, but no. First of all, it's all about grace. They messed up. That's the story of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1, beautiful garden. Genesis chapter 2, and, uh, okay, Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, all goes wrong. Genesis chapter 4 and 5, Cain and Abel, you get murder. Because Cain kills Abel. Then you go to a guy called Lamech. Lamech goes, it's 11 times worse now. And then you get to a place in Genesis 6, there's a flood, everybody's dead because it's all gone to pot. That's the story of Genesis. It's all went wrong. God made this beautiful, perfect garden. And within a few generations, well, one generation there's murder. A couple of generations later, it's 11 times worse. A few generations later, there's only Noah left who's doing anything right. Genesis is this slide of humanity in the like. This is what happens. And then God calls individuals. He calls people like Abraham. He calls people like Joseph. But then you get to Exodus. And he starts speaking to everybody. And he says things like, you will all be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation together. He talks of a covenant. He talks of a bond. It's the first place you see the heart of God come together to partner with humanity. God wants a marriage of heaven and earth. The human and divine come in together. He wants a priesthood. What do priests do? They express the divine to others. They show the world what God's like. So back in Exodus, God's going, I want you to be my body. I want you to express who I am. This idea of God, of God you expressing Jesus is not a new idea. It's a really old idea. Right from the very beginning, God went, you're going to be my people and you're going to express to everybody else who I am. And you're going to be my priests who show people what it's like. He's looking for a body. He's looking for a people who will represent him to the earth. He's looking for those who will be like him in flesh and blood and bone and skin. Then what happens next is the Ten Commandments. And they're often seen as these kind of like rules to live by. And of course, in one sense, they are. But you've got to understand them in the context of the time. These people have been in slavery for 400 years. How do you know how to live when you've been in slavery for 400 years? When you've suddenly got freedom, what do you do? 
How do you know what's right and what's wrong? How do you know how to treat people? How do you know how to treat one another? How do you know how to worship this God you're now free to worship? Hence, in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God goes, this is how you treat one another. This is how you worship me. This is how you love me. And of course, you read it, and sometimes it seems very harsh, particularly towards women, for example. But, but you have to remember, this is two, 3,000 BC. Women were property. They had the same level as a goat to be traded and sold. So when you're reading Deuteronomy and Leviticus, things that actually give a woman a right beyond that of a goat, this is God moving human history forward. This is God taking human rights forward. You can't read it and go, oh, well, if that happened today, that's terrible. Well, it's not today. Guess what? Women only got the vote 100 years ago. Did they not? <coughs> Black people only got equality in America 50, 60, 70 years ago. So you can't, and we go, okay, that's progress. Well, this is progress. The Bible is a book that progresses through history to show you what's what and show you how it's like. And these commandments reflect the heart of God. He tells them they should have no idols. Why? Because he's not interested in outward forms because he wants to be represented through them. So don't make a form. Don't make a, a calf. Don't make something. No, no, that's not how I am. I am in you. You're going to show me who I am. I don't want you to build things. I want you to be here. And then he says things. He talks about how they use his name, not to misuse his name. And we've kind of taken that to mean don't swear. But, and that's part of it, but it's much deeper than that. The Hebrew word means to carry. How will you carry my name? Because your name means something. Your name expresses who you are. That commandment is about how you live out who you are. Will you carry my name into all the earth and be faithful to it? Will you act in my name? Will you be like I am? Exodus 22, 21 to 23. This is one of the things that falls. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Don't take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry. God's really clear. You were once foreigners, but I rescued you. And I want you to treat people like I treated you. And if you don't, I'll hear their cry just like I heard your cry. And you could almost feel this sense that God says, even no matter who hurts them, I'll sort them out. Even if you're my people. Even if I've made some promises to you. If you're going to hurt the oppressed, no matter who they are, I'll come and sort you out. He's brought Exodus to them and now he wants them to do the same as his representatives on the earth. As his body, he's expecting them to do the same. He's warning them to make sure they don't become like the Pharaoh that oppressed them. Which is a great measure of our faith, isn't it? When you have been rescued, redeemed, restored, healed and transformed, what will you do with it? How are you handling all that you've received? When you started at the bottom and worked your way to the top, will you be different to the person that was there before you? When you've managed to do something different, when you've received healing, will you share that healing with others or will you treat people like you did before? How will you, what will you do with what you've been given? Are you passing it on or are you just enjoying it? Once you've been restored, are you restoring anybody else? Or are you just enjoying your restoration? Because once you receive exodus, once you receive liberation and freedom, it can go one of two ways. Which leads us to Jerusalem a few centuries later. Generations after Sinai, this tribe settled down, built cities, and the world is coming to see what they have done. 1 Kings in chapter 10. This is a lady called the Queen of Sheba. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. 
But I didn't believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me in wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. These people have been blessed. They've come from Exodus all through and now they are the rulers. They've built cities. Their wealth is flowing in. They're building temples. They're building palaces. They're building all sorts. In other words, they're not at the bottom of the pile anymore. Now they've risen to the top. The question is, when you've risen from the bottom to the top, what do you do with it? You see, the foreign queen understands the mandate God has given Solomon. In a sense, she prophesies. He has made you king to do what? To maintain justice and righteousness. Well, of course. Why else would God put him there? Other than to do what God wants him to do, which is to maintain justice and to maintain righteousness. The question is, does he? Does he do what's right? What happens when things are going well, when we prosper, when we're no longer the oppressed and the downtrodden, but we find ourselves at the top because it can go two ways. 1 Kings chapter 9. Here is the account of the forced labour King Solomon constructed to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and here's our Megiddo and Git. Hang on a minute. Solomon is building a temple for the God that frees slaves with slave labour. Ah, now that's a problem. That's a little bit hypocritical, isn't it? This is the God that frees slaves. This is the God that in Exodus took slaves out of Egypt. And this man, this king, is now using slave labor to build a temple to the God who sets slaves free. Ah, that's a bit of a problem. There would be a problem if he did that. If you said, my God, he's a slave freer, but we're going to use slaves to build a temple to the God who sets slaves free. He isn't maintaining justice and righteousness. And those places, by the way, Hazor, Megiddo and Geza, they're military bases. Megiddo is where we get the word Armageddon from. This man is using power, wealth and authority to build strategic military bases. He's using power and wealth to protect his power and wealth. 1 Kings 11. It gets worse. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidomites, and Hittites. These are all tribes that were around them. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. You see, God doesn't say just don't intermarry with them. He's concerned about their hearts. If you marry these people and they don't, they don't love me, you might leave me and I don't want you to leave me, so please don't do it. It's not the intermarrying, it's the heart he's bothered about. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast in love. He had 700 wives. I mean, seriously, he was always heading for trouble, wasn't he? Through 700. And 300 concubines, just in case he got bored of the 700. And his wives led him astray, <laughs> obviously. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. You remember back at Sinai, God said, if you keep my covenant. But Solomon didn't. Not only did he allow his heart to be turned away, but you read of him importing horses and chariots. You know it's called when you import horses and chariots that are the tanks and planes of the day. It's called being an arms dealer. He says he bought from Egypt and he sold to the... He's trading weaponry now with other nations. 
this, so he's meant to be the king, to maintain justice and righteousness, he's now an arms dealer. He's not devoted to God, and his heart has, not, has been led astray. He's using power, wealth, and privilege to protect his power, wealth, and privilege. Do you see why the Bible is so relevant? There are men this year who have hired very expensive lawyers to get an NDA, that's where it comes in, a non-disclosure agreement so that those who are at the bottom, those who are oppressed, don't have a voice. They use power, wealth, and privilege to shut up those who can't afford to fight for themselves. See, the Bible's so completely relevant because it's about people. Swap Solomon for Philip Green, it's exactly the same, whether he's done anything wrong or not. However else bought an NDA and used very expensive lawyers to shut people up so they couldn't say what they might have done wrong. That's why the Bible's so wonderfully amazing, because it speaks right into today. And now you go, what does God think about that? What does God think about people using power, wealth, and privilege to shut down the oppressed? Let's find out. We know there's a problem when the writer says the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, which is about 25 tons, which is a lot of gold in a year. But that's not really literal, because 666 is a very Jewish subversive way of saying something has gone horribly wrong here. But they'd been warned. God had been really clear. Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 to 17. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses. Oops. Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. Oops. He must not take many wives. Definitely bust that one. Or his heart will be led astray. That happened. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Oops. Instead of Solomon, that silver was considered worthless. Such was the amount of gold. This is a bit awkward for God. Because what happens when your body doesn't reflect you? What do you do? What happens when the people you have to carry your name don't carry your name? What happens when instead of carrying your name, they're giving you a bad name and acting in ways which are directly opposed to you? What happens when your people are everything you are not? Well, you have to call them back to who they really are, which is what the prophets do. So the second half of the Old Testament is all these prophets, and their whole job is to call Israel and go, whoa, hang on a minute, you're not meant to be dealing in arms. You're not meant to be trading weapons. You're meant to be maintaining justice and righteousness. So you see these prophets continually call them back, and God, God speaks to them time and time again through Amos, and he reminds them of where they came from, the family I brought out of Egypt. He says, no, but it's about exodus, it's about freedom. Remember where you came from, and then do that to somebody else. But the history books record it like this in 2 Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. Does that sound like an angry God to you? But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. In other words, God's response is that he won't stand for this. His people must reflect his name. And when they don't, when they refuse to listen time and time and time again, at some point, God will act. It's just the same with your own kids. When you want to do something, you start. You talk to them. You talk nicely. Then you ask them again. And eventually, you have to go nuclear. Because <laughs> nothing else is working. Eventually, you have to go, okay, this is going to happen now. If, you, if you're going to continually not listen to me, eventually, something's going to happen that you are really not going to like in the hope. Why? Because you want to punish your kids? No. Because you want them to listen. You're not doing it because you, you, you want to be mean to them and you want to punish them. You're going, you've not listened now and you're going to get hurt if you carry on this way. 
And I don't want you to get hurt because I love you. So I'm going to speak to you and speak to you and call you and call you. But at some point, I will have to do something that makes you listen. Any parent knows that to be true. What happens is Israel is invaded by the Babylonians. And they end up back in slavery. But that was their own doing. And we can skip Daniel 1, it's okay. Actually, no, just put Daniel 1 up already. You see, it says in Daniel 1, verse 2, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hand. Did the Lord deliver... Listen, God was trying to get him to listen. All right? And eventually, God goes, Okay, well, the Babylonians were going to attack. And of course, could God have stepped in and stopped him? Well, yeah, but ultimately, God's got nothing left to defend. These people are not doing anything that he's asked them to do. They're actually doing the exact opposite. Because if you act like every other nation, if you deal in arms, if you enslave all those around her, if you store up for yourself all the plunder, you create enemies left, right and centre. And when you've done none of that in God's name, why is God going to defend you? Why would God defend you when you've deliberately stood for everything he is not and when over decades and generations, excuse me, you've ignored him? This is not a God of judgment. It's a God of incredible grace who in an act of love has to go extreme to get his kids' attention. He wants them to be his body. He hasn't given up on them, but he needs them to listen. And after trying everything else, after generations, imagine, generations are trying to talk to him, and all the while his name getting dragged through the mud, he eventually goes, okay, we're going nuclear now. You're going to have to go back because you're not listening to anything else. So Israel ends up in exile, taken off as hostages, the temple's in ruins. But guess what happens? When, whilst they're exiled, the prophets see a new feature, future, a much bigger, wider future. They start to cry out. And what happens when people cry out? God hears. That's the whole story. He goes, I want you to listen to me. And then they go, oh, oh, we had it good. Yeah, you did. And they start crying out. And God hears. If you read through some of the prophets here, Isaiah says things like there's going to be a new thing. It says, although they realize the issue isn't an Egyptian pharaoh or a Babylonian king, it's that Egypt inside all of us are slavery to selfishness and sin. So the prophets start to speak, but it's a bit different. Isaiah said they would soar on wings like eagles, which if you remember the first one is exactly what God said he did. He took them out on wings of eagles. He harks back but looks forward. Isaiah says things like, and he says he's going to do a new thing and all people will see it together. It'll be announced to the ends of the earth. All people to the ends of the earth. And you think this is bigger, wider, far more encompassing than anything that's gone before. Which they know they need. Because if it goes like last time, it'll probably just end up like last time. Then you get to Jeremiah in chapter 31. It won't be like the covenant I made with your ancestors. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. In other words, though I did everything I said I'd do, and though I called them back, they basically just ignored me. You get this marriage picture going on all the time. This is the current I will make with them. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be my God and they will be my people. This is going to be different. And the prophets realised that their leader would have to have something to do with Solomon because that's where it all went pear-shaped. But this leader would have to be very different to Solomon because violence and arms dealing and hundreds of wives and palace building with slaves, that didn't go very well. So now we have to do something different. Isaiah calls him the Prince of Peace. He says he'll reign on David's throne forever, upholding it with justice and righteousness. He calls him a servant that would proclaim good news to the poor. 
And to try and help the Israelites remember Exodus, God initiated a meal called the Passover. On the night they left Egypt, they were to kill a lamb and daub his blood on the doorpost and the lintels. And over time, this meal developed into them reminding each other of God's promises. It was that meal, if you know the story, that Jesus had the night before he was betrayed. He says he took bread and broke it. That would have been a normal Passover meal, a normal Jewish meal. Except Jesus takes this Passover meal, he takes the bread and he takes the wine, and he relates it to himself. He'd already be referred to as the Lamb of God, and now he's asking his disciples to treat this as a representation of his body. He makes this ritual remembrance service about himself. You see, in the first Exodus, the Lamb's blood was a salvation for the Israelites who lived there. Jesus' blood is going to mean something far bigger. Paul would, write that, Paul would later write that Jesus was the firstborn over all creation. And in Exodus, they had to take a firstborn lamb. So Jesus is the picture. That's why everything in Jesus has to be understood in Exodus, because it hacks all the way back to Exodus and freedom from slavery and oppression and liberation. But this time, it's not just a lamb for the household. This time, it's a lamb that was slain for the creation of the world. And our right response to that is one of gratitude and thanksgiving. Now, the Greek word for thankful is eucharistos. It means two words. It's you, meaning well or good, and Christos, to grant or to give. It's where we get the word Eucharist, which is another name for communion, or Lord's Supper, or Mass, or whatever you want to call it. But it's written in Colossians that on the cross, through the blood of Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself. So when we celebrate this, we celebrate God reconciling all things to himself. It's much bigger than simply thanking God for the death of Jesus. Much, much bigger than that. Can somebody go get the kids back in? I'm almost there. See, often we've made this meal very personal. Often we've made this celebration, it's about me, and I'm thanking God that his blood was shed and his body was broken for me. But it's so much bigger than that. So much bigger. We can't reduce this celebration down to it being about me. Because it's way bigger than that. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10 to 12. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now Jesus allowed his body to be broken and part, literally. And, and for some of this, Paul who wrote this, it's literal as well, but really he's speaking of something deeper. He says... We who are alive are always being given over to death. What's he doing? He's speaking of how we bring exodus to others. How we bring life and healing to those around us. When we see their suffering, when we hear their cry, when we commit to do something about it, it will cost us something. That's why death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. That's how this Eucharist works. For someone to receive, somebody has to give. For someone to be fed, somebody has to prepare food. For someone to be inspired, which means life has been breathed into them, somebody has to expire some life. If someone somewhere benefits, then someone somewhere has paid something. That's how the world works. So when we come to this meal, of course we, we know that someone somewhere, Jesus, gave something so that someone somewhere could benefit. But there's a much deeper submersive kind of element to it, which is this. A true follower of Jesus is a living Eucharist. 
Somebody who understands this and understands Jesus is not just taking this for themselves. They're understanding, just like Paul, that they are given over to death for Jesus' sake. You see, we need to finish with some questions. I know that God has answered some cries of your, your heart and, and, and I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have all in one way or another experienced some form of exodus. You've been carried on wings of eagles and yes, you have challenges in front of you, but for the vast majority of us, we are not the oppressed. We are not the downtrodden. We are not at the bottom of the pile. So the question arises, which son of David are you? Solomon or Jesus? Solomon took all the blessings of God as entitlement, took all the blessings of God and used it as an excuse to store up more. Have you gained wealth, power and privilege? The answer, by the way, is yes. You have the power of choice every day. You have more than 99% of the world just in your home, let alone your bank account or your car. Do you have privilege? Yes, you have the privilege of choice, the privilege to do whatever you want, wherever you want, when you want. So are we power, wealthy and privileged? Yes, we are. The question is then, what do we do with that power, wealth and privilege? Do we use all that power, wealth and privilege and just build it and hoard it and build bases that protect it, whatever they may be? Or are we like the other son of David? Do we use what we've been given, what we've received to bring exodus to others? Do we use all we've received to sow out into the world, to pour ourselves out for the healing of the world? Or are we more than happy to store it up and pat ourselves on the back? You see, for me, the story that runs through this whole book is a, Bible, is, is a God who hears the cry of the oppressed, of the poor and the needy, and does something about it. And it's a story of a God who's looking for a body. Right from Exodus chapter 3, he's going, I want a body. I want somebody that I can live in and dwell in and express myself through because I see this hurting world and I want to do something about it. And I want you to carry my name into all the world, which will cost you something because to carry it and to give something means you have to pay a price. So the question we've got to face is to what extent are we carrying his name and bringing exodus to those around us? We're going to celebrate this meal together, this Eucharist together. But as we do so, I don't want to consider primarily his death. We do that most times. But I want to consider ours. I want to consider the extent to which we are given over to death for others' sakes. To what extent are we given over for the sake of those around us? Can you hear the cry of those around you? Or do you just walk past? Are you even listening? Or are you enjoying and storing up the blessings? You're meant to enjoy them, but there's meant to be a flow. Water that just stays still becomes stagnant. In order to really experience a life-giving flow, you have to find an outlet for that life. Otherwise, it stores up and eventually, like Solomon, it kills you. So the question as we celebrate together is, how am I being given over to give out to those around me? In whatever way, shape or form that means. And listen, listen, guilt's not helpful, but awareness is helpful. Honesty is helpful.